However, standing by right now is the one and the only, Sean Mooney. Who? Mooney, everybody's got a price for the Million Dollar Man. After you threw him off through the announce table, Taker climbs back down, he gets in the ring, and he goes, see if he's breathing. So right before I called 911, I thought she'd fallen asleep. Kind of shook her a little bit to, to wake her up, and she did not respond. I don't go down to my, go to my grave testifying or whatever, swearing that Davey was not on drugs. If he was on drugs, the way Brett says, how does, I mean, how great does that make Davey? Are you laughing, Sean? I get off the track here all the time. Did you just laugh, Sean? You go ahead and chop me. Just give me a big chop. I'll sell. I'll give you my whole chest and everything. And then I'll look at you like this, and then I'll punch you right in the mouth as hard as I can. <laughs> Attention, Sean Mooney, you scum, you slime, you maggot. If there's no further questions, you're dismissed. Carry on, maggot. Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another edition of Primetime with Sean Mooney. I uh, am uh, really happy to be sitting here in my bunker, uh, kind of a makeshift uh, broadcast booth, as uh, you know, I'm uh, just moved uh, back into uh, my favorite home. I'm glad to be home again. And anyway, and, and then with all the circumstances, everything going on, so I've kind of had to set up in a place that, uh, you know, it's a little, I, it sounds maybe a little echoey, so I apologize for that, but uh, we, we will get things uh you know, uh, fixed soon. But in the meantime, I hope that you'll bear with me. And I, I hope this episode finds everybody uh, healthy and, uh, you know, faring well. This is really, really a tough time for everybody. I don't really care what the circumstances may be for you because no matter what you're dealing with, if you're still working, uh, you are dealing with uh, different uh, things you have to do to, uh, you know, self-distance or be six feet away from everybody. And uh, every time you go out, you know, they want you to wear a mask now. And uh, like my workplace, I go to, to the TV station and they, uh, the whole, everybody's gone uh, that, uh, is non, uh, that is not essential to be there. And so that's kind of difficult because you, you have to contact people through uh, either emails or you get on uh, the phone with them. And it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's tough. It's tough on everybody. And then if you're out of a job, I mean, there's just, Millions of people have lost their job through this, which has been really, really tough. I mean, uh, we hope that when the all clear finally happens, that everybody gets those jobs back. But, you know, we don't know how this is going to affect businesses, especially small businesses, because, uh, you know, a vast majority of our jobs in this country are uh, owned by small business owners. They're the ones that keep this country moving and they're taking a, a beating right now. And, uh, you know, it's not like they have months and months and months of cash to uh, keep the business going. So they need to get back to work. But then again, we want to do it when everybody's safe. And it's it's just really tough. So really, the message here is I just hope you're all safe and you're, you're doing okay. And that uh, your loved ones are near you and they're healthy and you're healthy. And I just want you to know, I really, really appreciate you guys tuning in. Uh, it's, uh, it's fantastic that... Uh, you take the time to listen to our, our episodes, and it's uh, it's hard to believe, man. We just keep rolling along here, and uh, I know I haven't even seen the count lately, but I know we've got to be approaching the uh, 200 episodes somewhere in that neighborhood. And it's hard to believe that we started this three years ago, and I was basically really I was going week to week. 
but um, you know, I, I'm uh, happy to be a, a small part of, of, of the many thousands of uh, people out there who do podcasts and other uh, you know forms of entertainment that are helping to, uh, people to get through all this. And uh, really, I, I'm, I'm very thankful. And I, as I said, I hope you're all doing well. Um, also, a big shout out to the sponsors out there who keep supporting podcasts uh, during a time when um, you know a lot of people don't have a lot of money to spend. They're they're at home waiting for uh, money to come, stimulus money to help them get through this. And uh, every every cent is going just basically survival. Uh, but for those uh, those sponsors who uh, have continued to uh, support the podcast and and do uh, you know put up ads uh, really thank you and I hope uh, out there if you can do it um, I'm, I mean I know it's tough for a lot of people out there but if you can do it please support these sponsors um, you're helping them stay in business and uh, you're helping uh, people who do these podcasts keep doing them because uh, you know it uh, there is there is some cost to doing these things and you want you got you have a support uh, staff of people that uh, help you get these done so if you can do it uh, please please help help support uh, everybody around and, and again thanks uh, to all the sponsors um, I uh, I know that sometimes the ads they, they can wear on people because you know we have them and they interrupt the show and you're listening to something but uh, they're very necessary and uh, I hope that uh, you know you're okay with all that. Uh, if you're not, though, I mean, if you can do it, I mean, we'd love to have you on Patreon where we do, uh, you know, everything's early and ad-free. You don't have to have the ads. And if uh, it's something you can do, please go to uh, patreon.com slash primetimemooney, patreon.com slash primetimemooney, and uh, sign up. You get everything early and ad-free uh, for just $4.99 a month, and uh, you get all of our content. Mondays, we've got the uh, Network Classics. Uh, this week we had a really good one. Uh, Saturday night's main event from November 29th, 1986, and uh, just full of superstars. The the and the the best of the best at the time. Uh, there was a match in there with Hulk Hogan. He takes on uh, uh, Ray Hernandez, uh, or uh, I should say Ray Fernandez is his real name, but everybody knew him as Ray uh, Hercules, uh, Hercules Hernandez, and uh, that the match for the championship and. Randy Savage defending his Intercontinental Championship. Randy was the, the, the champion then, and he takes on Jake Roberts, and it's just just fun stuff. And, of course, anytime I get to see Gene doing his thing. So check out that episode. It dropped on Monday. And uh, we got a great one coming up. Now, we're coming off an, uh, an episode about Nitro and the, and the, uh, the author, uh, Guy Evans, and uh, just getting his take on, uh, of course, the book, which does a great job chronicling, uh, you know, the Monday Night Wars. And there's been a lot written about that period of time. And, of course, Monday Night Wars, uh, that book, and uh, people have differing opinions on what they think uh, is the actual story. But I think you take all that stuff in and then you kind of make up your own mind what happened during that time and the influence it's had on the world of professional wrestling. But, you know, Guy was uh, a great uh, a great interview, and I just really loved getting his take and what he went through to, you know, talk to all these people and get their, uh, you know, their 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 view of what happened during that period of time, and and some really great uh, interviews with people that were behind the scenes. That's what I really liked about uh, his book, is because, you know, he talks about he interviews a lot of these these executives and you know, the guys with Turner. 
and their viewpoint. I don't know if people had really gotten uh, an understanding of where that all was coming from and how it changed over the years because you know, the WCW was just this big financial drain and it was just something, it was a, this pet project that Ted Turner just wouldn't let go. And then you, you know, have uh, somebody come in and take over and they're thinking, okay, boy, this will be at the death knell. Let's just, you know, finally, 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 we'll be able to get rid of this thing. And you've got Eric Bischoff who comes in and he is determined to make a profit. That was his sole focus, as he says. And uh, that's what's awesome about this week is that not we come off talking with Guy and, and going through all that period of time with uh, chronicling Nitro. And uh, this week we, we have Eric. We, we, uh, I had uh, wanted to talk to Eric for a really long time. We'd had a couple of conversations before about him coming on and uh, he wanted to do it, but of course he was crazy busy. I mean, he was always you know, between all the things he was doing between the podcasts and then uh, his business dealings, and then of course going to work for the WWE during that period of time. Uh, he was he was pretty damn busy, but uh, we got got the chance to get him, and uh, the timing couldn't have been better uh, coming off the uh, Nitro episode, and we had a great conversation, as you are about to find out. Uh, but uh, you know, my approach to this was that you know everybody has heard about that period of time, and if you want to hear about it, uh, Eric has uh, you know talked all about it. I mean, he, how many times you can catch him on a lot of podcasts and shows, and you know he was on Starcast, and they have the, the you know different authors on there, and him going you know debating these guys, and of course he's got a podcast called Eighty Three Weeks, which talks about that period of time when uh, they were beating the WWE. So uh, I really focused, I'm just fascinated by his career. Um, He kind of came into the business in a sense, uh, at least from in front of the camera, like I did. And look what he ended up doing. I mean, uh, no denying, no matter what you say about Eric Bischoff, he had a tremendous impact on the world of professional wrestling forever. He changed it. He he was one of the players. He will he, he you know he doesn't take full credit for this, but he understands uh, that he was a big player in this and, and was one of the people that made this all happen. And so, uh, as you'll find out when we have this conversation coming up, but uh, really, I, I just uh, enjoyed it very much. Uh, before we get to that, um, again, uh, I want to uh, remind you folks that uh, please uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Um. We, uh, you can uh, follow us uh, just by, uh, you know, either one. It's real easy. It's just uh, at Primetime Mooney, at Primetime Mooney. You can Gmail me as well at uh, uh, Primetime Mooney at gmail.com. See how easy we make it? I'd uh, love to have you, uh, uh, you know, check it out. Give me an email. I'd love to hear from you, find out how you're doing. But in the meantime, what do you say? Let's get to this conversation with Eric Bischoff. Ding, ding, ding. Folks, joining me now is one of the most dynamic and impactful people in the world of professional wrestling, known for changing the industry forever in the late 90s as one of the principal players in the Monday Night Wars. But folks, that was just a brief span of Eric Bischoff's career, and I plan to enlighten you on this edition of Primetime. Eric, welcome. How are you, my friend? I am very well, Sean. Great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. I'm really glad you, uh, you reached out. Yeah, and I uh, know you just got a workout in, and uh, we're both over 60 now, and I've seen you. You're in great shape. What do you do? What do you do for a workout? 
Actually, I was in horrible shape <clears throat> for oh, quite a while over the last couple of years. I just, you know, I quit working out and wasn't really that active and not eating real well. And I, you know, I blew up to about 220. When I left Stanford, I was about 225. <clears throat> and truth really? be told, I probably shouldn't weigh more than 175 or 180. I'm not a big guy. You know, I don't yeah. lift or anything like that. And I'm not a big frame person. So, I put on about 30 or 40 pounds of stuff I just didn't need. And I got tired of it. You know, my energy yeah. was down. Just didn't feel all that good. So right after the Super Bowl, I started uh, hitting the treadmill. Uh, I did two hours this morning. I got up this morning, did a three-mile hike with the dog. So I put in about 10 to 12 miles a day, either on the treadmill or hiking, you know, combination thereof. And just watch my diet. You know, I'm not in the gym. Obviously, I, I kind of wanted to get into the gym, but yeah. uh, clearly that's not possible right now. So just uh, watching my diet and getting in lots of cardio. Yeah. You, you, do you ever do the martial arts anymore? I, I mean, I got into doing kickboxing, but mostly it wasn't to try and beat people up because I wouldn't be very good at it. But I, the workout was just incredible. So you still do any of that? No, I don't. I get into a bar fight once about every seven years or so just to make sure I still <laughs> You still yeah. got it? Um, well, I still had it about six and a half years ago, so we'll see what happens You know, in six yeah. months or so. You're, but, you're due, right? <laughs> I'm due. But, um, no, I don't do it anymore. But really, martial arts, kickboxing yeah. in particular, is a great exercise. Yeah. People don't realize, you know, your legs are such a, uh, you know, there's so much muscle mass, you know, in your legs and your hips and glutes. When you start throwing your legs around and, and, and spending a lot of time doing that, you can burn a lot of calories and get in shape real fast. Yeah. So, uh, you know, before we started recording, folks, I was talking to Eric that he's in Cody, and, and probably many of you already know that, that uh, that's where he lives now. Uh, and we're all going through this, I guess, lockdown, the pandemic. Uh, how has life been where you are? You know, Sean, it's, you know, I, I almost feel guilty, you know, so I, I got to kind of watch my tone a little bit um, because, you know, we moved, my wife and I moved here um, to Wyoming back in 1998. We built our house here. And one of the reasons mm -hmm. that we did is because we like, we love the mountains, you know, we love doing things outdoors, but we also like, you know, living out in the middle of nowhere. You know, we don't like being in a, in a suburb necessarily, or in the confines yeah. of a big city. So for us, this was a, this was a way of life that we chose 20 yeah. some years ago. And I was joking around with you <clears throat> just before the podcast started. And I said, really, you know, for, for us, we're living the same lifestyle now that we did exactly a year ago. You know, we right. don't go much, you know, it's a way of life there. Self-distancing. You know, Wyoming's, <laughs> yeah. got, Wyoming's got a population density of about six people per square mile. Yeah. And where we live, it's even less than that. So yeah. it's it, it's really been no big deal for us. Uh, our daughter is here. We brought her in from L.A. because I wasn't so sure how L.A. was going to handle everything. Yeah. And uh, she's here. So it's been like a little bit of a vacation for us, as guilty as that I feel when I say that. But uh, it is what it is. Yeah, you know, I'm not out in Arizona. I live down in Tucson. I know you spent time in Phoenix. I think you lived in Scottsdale. Uh, a great life there, and it's beautiful. But, man, it, those summers are a little tough. Yeah, we lived in Cave Creek, which is just on the northern border yeah. of Scottsdale. Right. And uh, I absolutely loved it until about May. 
And by the middle of May, I was loading up my horse trailer, packing up my horses and my Harley and hooking up to the truck and driving up to Wyoming because the summers there are just, we've spent a few summers there. Yeah, Yeah, it is tough. Um, you know, we're all communicating with the the internet and everybody's Zooming and doing all of these other, you know, ways of staying connected. And uh, I found it interesting, you know, when I was going to get you on the, the podcast is that I know that you have kind of been ahead of the curve on all this. Uh, I know when you did your podcast and then you were doing a lot of stuff where you were streaming online. Uh, what got you into it? And, uh, you know, did you were you thinking this is the future or what made you start experimenting with all this? Just curiosity. When I was a little kid, I grew up in Detroit. And when I was a little kid, I had a neighbor, my parents had a neighbor, I should say, that had a Citizens Band radio in his house. He was a truck driver. And he had a a base station, is what they call a home unit, um, in his home. And I used to go over there, like when I was six and seven and eight years old, and I would be amazed because he'd be talking into this microphone and, and be communicating with people all around him without being on a telephone. Now we're uh, going back to like 1962 and 1963 when, you know, technology was what it was. And I was so fascinated uh, with that. And then later on, you know, my family moved to Pittsburgh and, you know, as soon as I got a job and could make enough money, I bought a Citizens band radio. And I was just fascinated uh, with the idea that you could communicate without, you know, you know, a, a hard line, a telephone. Right. Yeah. And as time, you know, I got interested in ham radio. I got interested in all kinds of, of, of ways of communicating. So when, you know, the Internet started blowing up and streaming started becoming available and, 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 and the types of things that we're doing on Skype, I was just always looking at the next kind of phase of technology. Yeah. So I dabbled in Twitch and I dabbled in a lot of other things, not because I was so committed to them necessarily, but I wanted to learn about it. And for me, I I can't read about things. I can't hear about things. I have to actually do them to experience them. Yeah. So uh, for better or worse, I kind of dove in feet first on a couple different platforms just to check them out and see how much I liked them and, and, and how they worked out for me. Yeah, and, and you know what else is uh, I found really interesting. I saw you know some of your Twitch stuff really was, and I, I'm wondering if you were surprised by the interaction. Like maybe you didn't expect, because I know you come in and you see all the hearts going, and then you're like, "Oh, Bill's with us. He's out in Idaho." And and uh, did it surprise you how you know because you don't think we can I really connect to that person, and that you did, right? Yeah. Well, it, it it is overwhelming, and that's you know one of the there was a lot of reasons why I, I quit doing Twitch. Um, for me, from a technological point of view, because I'm not a very tech oriented person. In fact, yeah. I refer to myself privately as a high tech redneck, mm-hmm. and I and I think it's more than appropriate. <clears throat> um, and Twitch was a little too techy for me. This the process of 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 doing it was just a little too cumbersome for me. Um, I like Zoom a lot. I yeah. just started using that about 10 days ago, and I really like that because it's, you know, it's it's stupid proof. You yeah, know? it's simple. Even, even I can figure it out. Yeah. And the quality is yeah. good. And, uh, but, yeah, it was a little overwhelming. I'll tell you the other one that I played around with for a while, and I keep thinking about going back to it just because it's fun, is Periscope on Twitter. I had a mm-hmm. bl- yeah, Jonathan Coachman still does it every week because I or every day I think because I still get a notice every yeah, yeah. live. Um, but I really like Periscope as well. But you know, with Periscope, I've got to do it on my phone, and the screen's real small, and I can't see shit, so yeah. I'm 
I'm doing this, you know, trying to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. I do it too often, but uh, this works out great. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm always interested uh, because uh, how people grow up, because to me, that's that is what really shapes you. And I know it did me. Uh, I grew up, you know, my mom raised five kids and I have a dad around and it has like this tremendous, tremendous impact. I know that you come from humble beginnings. And could you share a little bit about what that was like for you and how it uh, early on started to shape who you became? Well, you know, I, I'll, I'll just talk about the way I grew up. Um, you know, when, when, as a kid, I didn't know I was living in humble beginnings because I didn't know anything else I, yeah. in, yeah. in my neighborhood. And we all had the same kind of standard of living. And we didn't have a lot of uh, diversity in, in, in terms of income in the environment where we lived. You know, Detroit was in the 50s and the 60s. I was born in 55 and I lived in yeah. Detroit until, up until 1968, I think, when I was 13. And where my family lived in Detroit, most of those families came in right after World War II uh, because of the automotive industry. So you had a lot of families that would come up from the South, Mississippi in particular, Alabama, Georgia. Uh, a lot of families had moved up from the South because the jobs were plentiful and they paid really well in Detroit compared to jobs in the South. A lot of immigrants came over. We, you know, the neighborhood I lived in, it was so, so great because you know, two doors down from me, or I should say half a block down from me, it was all Italian families. And when I say Italian, I mean, mm -hmm. don't speak English Italian, right? Oh, now, the kids oh. did. The kids did a little bit. But the parents and the grandparents, because they all lived together, they were all right over from Italy. Um, on the other side of the street, they were all Polish. You know, two blocks over from me, they were all German. You know, so it was like a, it was like living a, a, in a United Nations compound for me growing up yeah. as a kid. And it was cool because yeah. I thought everybody grew up that way, you know, and the best part of it was in the summertime, everybody had garden. Now, you got to keep in mind, we lived in little 700 square foot, 800 square foot homes. I mean, they were small, right? And they had yeah. yards yeah. or maybe a 16th of an acre and had a garage on it, but everybody had a garden and the Italian families, they had goats, they had chickens, they had gardens. And on the weekends, they would all get together and they would cook. And it yeah. was just so much fun because, you, you know, you wake up in the morning and you're smelling your neighborhood. You know, everybody's cooking something. One family's cooking spaghetti. The other yeah. family's cooking goats or whatever they're doing. You know? and it, was, it was awesome. Um, but it was, you know, it was as I got older, you know, once I got out of that adolescent stage and started going to junior high school, it was a little bit of a rough neighborhood. It wasn't like, you know, it probably is today or was 15 years ago or 10 years ago. But, it, you know, I got a fist fight every single day. I got a, I got three times a day. Yeah. I got the fight on the way to school. Usually um, somebody would take my lunch in the middle of the day and I end up fighting, trying to keep that. And I would get I get in a fight, and get beat up almost every day on my way home from school. And that was just a way of life. I didn't even realize how horrible it was until I got away from it. It was just yeah. what you did almost for entertainment, right? As a kid, which is really kind of fucked yeah. up about it. But that was how I grew up. And in terms of how it shaped me, it, I don't think any of that really had an impact on me, except for I grew up loving Italian food. Yeah. I grew up 
helping, you know, diverse cultures to this day. I still, that's one of the reasons I love to travel. And it's one of the reasons I like going to places like North Korea and Qatar and, you know, other places around the world that are a little unique because I love to dive into um, cultures that are completely different than my own. Yeah. I love to learn about the history. I love to learn about the food. I love to spend time with the people. And I think it gives me a broader perspective on things in the world, um, maybe. Uh, but the one thing that I did think I took away from the way I grew up, and it's mostly because of my parents, and not mostly, all because of my parents, is work ethic. Yeah. You know, I, should, I, I, I would go down, there was a little Italian grocery store about two blocks from my home where I grew up. It was called Lucy's. And actually, the store is still there. Somebody actually sent me a picture of the store recently. It's still there. But I would go there every day, and I'd pick up all the litter in the parking lot when I was like six or seven years old. And my payday uh, for the day was they would let me go into the cash register, and whatever change I could grab in both hands was my pay for the day. Yeah. You know. Now, fortunately, I had small hands, and it you know, cost them about <laughs> Spence, two dollars it's a big deal to me right yeah. i felt like yeah. man i'm making money and then i got a paper route when i was like 10 or 11 years old and started working you know in a, in a variety of different jobs by the time i was 12 or 13 so I've, I've been working literally since i was six or seven years old and it's just work ethic and i i attribute that to the neighborhood i grew up in because everybody worked hard and and my parents because they were a good example of that yeah well, and the story goes, Eric, that um, you learned that punching back was a lot more effective than taking it. And I, I wonder, how did, was that a life-altering discovery to you? Because uh, that's kind of the way you've lived your life, that uh, you, don't, you don't take shit from anybody, really. You're willing to give it back if it's, if it's dished out. And I'm, was that a lesson learned early on? Well, it, it was. And, you know, as a kid growing up, I wasn't a good fighter. I wasn't a tough kid. Mm. I was kind of a runt. Um, most of the kids in, in my age group were generally bigger than me. I didn't, I didn't start developing until later on in life. So I was an easy target. And, and on top of that, usually the kids that were, you know, picking fights and taking my lunch money and that kind of shit were two or three years older than I was. Yeah. So, um, you know, you just learn, you learn how to take, you, you learn how to get beat up. You learn that it's really not that bad. You, I learned that there's nothing to be afraid of. You know, mm -hmm. people are so afraid to get punched in the head because they think, oh, my God, what if I get hit? I, I, to me, I don't wake up till somebody hits me. You know? <laughs> I don't really get excited about anything till somebody lands a good punch. Yeah. Okay, I guess this is what we're doing now. But I didn't learn that, and to your point, until actually when I moved from Detroit, uh, we moved to Pittsburgh. And I remember, like, my second or third day in school, uh, I was on a bus. I had never taken a bus before because in Detroit, I walked to school. It was only six blocks away. So I was taking mm -hmm. this bus, and there's a kid sitting behind me. His name was John Stockland. And he was a you know bigger kid, high school foot or junior high football team, kind of the jock, you know. And he was sitting behind me on this bus, and he's pinging me on the head with this little metal trowel that he made in shop. All the way home from school, he says, like, ding. Ding, he's binging me on the back of my head. And everybody around would laugh because he's uh -huh. picking up a new kid. Yeah. And I thought, man, I'm just, I'm not going to go through this. You know, I, I just left all this. I'm not. So as soon as the bus came up, came to a stop after he'd been pinging me on the back of the head for about 45 minutes, I stood up to around sucker punch him right in the mouth. And he went down hard, got on top of him. Of course, everybody broke up the fight. And then the next, you know, he called me out. That was a big deal. I'll call you out, you know. And, 
the next day after school, we were all on the bus and we met at this golf course um, near where the bus dropped us off. And of course, all the kids in school knew, you know, the new kid's going to get beat up by John Stockline. And we got into a fight and I just beat the piss out of him. Mm. And I realized then that kids who, who fought in Detroit were way better at it. <laughs> they had more and, practice. <laughs> and, and, and I, and I, once I, that fight ended pretty quickly in my favor and I never got into another fight again, mm. all the time I was in Pittsburgh. I, mm. And I went, there's a lesson there. You know, mm. if you're going to get into a fight, win it, win it hard. And generally people will leave you alone. And that's mm. what happened to me. And that's what I kind of learned, I think, to, you know, I'll let people push me around to a point, And then once that line is crossed, then you got to kind of stand up for yourself. And that's probably yeah. where I look at. Thanks, John Stockland. Well, <laughs> yeah, and you still remember his name. So it was uh, important. And uh, I have a feeling that the martial arts part didn't come into your life because you wanted to beat more people up. What, what was it about martial arts that uh, attracted you to that? You, you know, I had a, when, when I lived in Pittsburgh, my, my dad was paralyzed. Um, he, he had brain surgery when he was in his mid-20s, late-20s. Um, and when he came out of surgery, you know, this was in the 60s, and technology wasn't what it is today. And when he came out of the brain surgery, yeah. both his hands and both his arms were paralyzed. So my dad couldn't do a lot of things with me. You know, he, he loved to hunt. He loved to fish. He was a real outdoorsman. Uh-huh. And he could no longer do those things. And I had a, uh, we, we had a guy that lived across the street from me. When I was like 14, he was 25 or 26. That kind of took, he was like a big brother to me and would take me hunting and do a lot of things with me. And he was also a Vietnam vet uh, who had taken martial arts when he was in Vietnam. And he kind of exposed me to it. And, and it, because I looked up to him, he was kind of a mentor, big brother to me. It impressed me a lot. And then, it, you know, later on in life, when I was financially able to and had the time, I, I, I continued to pursue it seriously. But it all started, his name was Bob Raciopi, and uh, it was because of him, really. When did you realize you were good at it, though? I mean, you actually competed in the tournaments, and I don't I know how successful you were. I thought you must have done pretty well. Yeah, I did. I, yeah. I was pretty decent. Um, you know, I, I loved contact. You know, I wrestled throughout high school. I started in junior high, and... And I was never very good at it, but I loved it. You know, I was probably on a good day. I was mediocre on a really good day. Um, I always made varsity because that was important to me because you can't get a date with a cheerleader if you don't make varsity. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, I, I would I would always make the varsity team, but I wouldn't yeah. necessarily perform that well. Oh. Um, but I liked the contact. I liked the physical nature of it. So when I got into martial arts, I got into a school in a system that was real hardcore. The group was from Dallas, Texas, and they grew up in a really hardcore style of karate. And it just suited me. And I, I was good at it, I guess partly because I wasn't afraid of getting hit. And yeah. the idea of being able to kick somebody in the head was really appealing to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I, like everything else, you know, I threw myself into it. I sold a business that was pretty successful and decided I was going to become a full-time martial arts instructor and competitor. And I did. Um, mm. For a couple of years, I did that exclusively until I realized, man, I'm 27, 28 years old and I'm flying all over the country on my own dime fighting these tournaments and, really not making any money so it's time to get serious yeah well uh uh, i wanted to uh ask you uh, you know as far as being driven and 
uh, I know when I got out of high school, I didn't know what the hell I was going to do, but um, I knew that I wasn't going to really get anywhere, especially back then. Maybe it's a little different today unless I went to college. And what is it that, that made you decide, you know, I, I need to get a, an education and, and, and led you to Minnesota, which started your path to where you would end up. But at the time, what was it that, you know, you said, I got to get serious and why there? Uh, well, actually, my parents moved from Pittsburgh when I was about 15 to Minnesota. So I, I moved with them to Minnesota. I didn't move to Minnesota to go to college. Uh, I Look, the only reason I went to school at all was so that I could stay on the wrestling team. <clears throat> I hated school. Really? Yeah. There were certain subjects. Like, I, I got A's in German because I was I like German. I, I like the mm. idea of being able to speak a foreign language. I loved physics, believe it or not. That was my favorite class was physics. Now, I was challenged by physics because as much as I love the theory of physics and so much about physics, I sucked at math. So it made it really challenging for me. Mm. But I still loved it. So there were like physics and German and a couple of, you know, history I loved. Everything else, I just, I never went. I, to this day, I'll have a reoccurring nightmare about once every year or two that <clears throat> I showed up for graduation and realized I wasn't going to graduate because I shouldn't have. <laughs> but it was back in the early 70s. It was kind of on the tail end of the hippie thing and nobody wanted to fail anybody. So yeah. as long as you were, it's kind of like everybody gets a trophy in today's Right. Yeah, you just show up and you'll get yeah. through. Showed up. You know, and they kind of knew your name. They'd pass you. And that's the only reason I was able to get out of high school. I only went to college to get laid. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I had no intention of going to college. Uh, You've just blown my theory. I'm like thinking he said, you know, he's, I, I've, I've got to do this because I'm going to end up better off than, you know, anybody before me. But no, no let's I, get no, late. I just I didn't even think about going to college until uh, after after graduation, and then about halfway through the summer, it's like, fuck, all my friends are 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 taking off and are, they're they're going to college. So I applied to Saint Cloud State University, which you know didn't take a lot to get in, uh, and and I went to Saint Cloud State because a lot of my friends were there, and the parties just moved from where we lived. I lived in a suburb of Minneapolis called Minnetonka. And the parties moved from Minnetonka to St. Cloud State University, so it was a it was a great transition for me. But I I, I it was the same thing, you know. I, I went to a couple classes a week, <laughs> maybe went to all the parties. Yeah. And and the reason I went to St. Cloud State University is because in 1973 or 72, the year before I went there, Playboy. Uh, I think they ranked St. Cloud State University as like one of the top 10 party schools in the Midwest. So I, fuck. There you go. There's it. Otherwise, you would have ended up at Arizona, which is also yeah. was uh, ASU was always up there. But, uh, you know, when you get out of this, I mean, do you, ha do you have a plan? Because, uh, I mean, we can fast forward to how you ended up with Vern Gagne, but what was the plan? I didn't. Have supposedly a starting a career. I didn't have a plan. I was. Yeah. You know, I, I you know I was teaching martial arts for a long time and yeah. just not making any money doing that. And then uh, after that, um, well, let me back up. Before that, uh, when I was in high school, I worked for a landscape and construction company. And after high school, I partnered up with a, a friend of mine. He had a lawn maintenance company. I had a landscape company. And we kind of partnered up and, and combined the two. And we did a lot of commercial landscaping and maintenance. And then about 1975, after I had been out of high school for a couple of years, 
our company was doing pretty well. And in Minneapolis and St. Paul at the time, they got a, a real severe um, disease called Dutch Elm disease. And if you were in Minneapolis or St. Paul in the older neighborhoods, you know, downtown in both cities, all of the streets were lined with elm trees. Well, these elms kind of got the, the tree version of coronavirus and they all they all died. So the state of Minnesota hired uh, contractors to come in and replace all these trees. And we were able to get one of the bids. Wow. Yeah, I was like 22 years old at the time, you know, making 110, 105,000 a year. Now, this is 1970. Wow. So that yeah, was that's a lot, a lot of money. Of um, and we did really quite well, but I got tired of it. You know, first of all, it was the summertime. The busiest yeah. time of the year for us was between <clears throat> March 15th and about November 15th. Well, that's where all the fun is. You know, I was working yeah. 18 hours a day all summer while my friends were having yeah. a blast. And I'm like, you know, I'm tired. I was still I was 21 years, 22 years old. I was like, yeah, I don't do this anymore. So I sold out to my partner. That's when I got into martial arts very heavily. And I did that for about five years. After that, when I realized I couldn't make any money doing that, I was always been kind of a good salesperson. So I went to work for a food processor and did great there as a salesperson. And then they gave me a job as a sales manager, hiring and training other salespeople. And I had a crew of about 20 people underneath me and managed that team for quite a while. Did that. And then uh, eventually, through a series of coincidences, ended up sitting down in front of Vern Gagne and Next thing I knew, I got hired yeah. <laughs> to work there. Were you aware at the time of, uh, you know, what a wrestling community that was with you had all these guys at Robbinsdale, you know, that they all came from there in that area. And of course, uh, you know, the families were there because the professional wrestlers were there. Uh, were you aware at the time of that? Or is it just was all coincidental that, you know, you ended up down this road and then started working for Vern? No, no, I mean, I was certainly aware that Minneapolis was a big hub for wrestling. But right. again, before cable television, I knew nothing of, you know, other regional promotions around the country. Now, I, you know, I grew up a wrestling fan in Detroit. So, I, I, you know, I kind of figured out by the time I was 14 or 15 that, you know, wrestling was very regional. But I didn't right. think of it that way. Yeah. When I lived in Minneapolis, um, you know, I, I was a, a fan of you know, Vern Gagne and, and, and the AWA um, certainly knew that there was a lot of talent there because Vern was a big territory. So he would bring in Dusty Rhodes and Andre the Giant and, yeah. you know, all the big Hulk Hogan, obviously, and <clears throat> a lot of other big names. But I really didn't know the magnitude of how much influence Vern really had on the industry till long after I left Minneapolis. Mm hmm. Well, wow. you know, in your, your career, the early part of it, anyway, it reminds me of Gene a lot, uh, Oakland, because Gene was uh, a sales guy at heart. We all know that, you know, and he was uh, could sell anything, was involved in advertising and kind of got in there uh, selling for them. And it was one of those things where somebody goes down and he steps up and starts announcing. And, and it, it kind of happened for you that way. And did was it something that you said, you know, I, I want to do this or was it just an opportunity? No, as a matter of fact, one of the last times I was able to sit down and have a cocktail with Gene, we mm. talked about the parallel. In, yeah. in, in, we were both in Minnesota. We were up at a place called Fortune Bay Casino in northern Minnesota. And yeah. Gene was sitting at the bar, and I sat down and ordered a meal, and so did he. And we were just kind of reminiscing. And I didn't realize that 
you know, Gene was, you know, he was either doing radio or television. I think it was radio yeah. in, in one of the uh, local television stations when Vern lost an announcer and heard Gene's voice and basically grabbed him and said, yeah. come over, let's do this or something to that effect. I'm, I'm yeah. And Gene was still, he was selling too. He was also yeah. selling advertising. I mean, he wasn't just doing radio. Yeah. Right. And it was kind of the same with me. Now, when I got hired by, by Vern, actually it was a guy by the name of Mike Shields that worked for Vern and actually hired me. But, you know, Vern had to approve it, obviously. But when I yeah. went to work for Vern in the AWA, my, my role was to, and, you know, you, you know what I'm talking about. Some of your listeners may not anymore. But, you know, syndicated sales was still a big deal. A lot of the, yeah. a lot of the <clears throat> markets around the Midwest Vern would produce, she had two shows. He produced one for ESPN and he produced one for syndication. My job was to convince general managers and program directors around the five-seat area in Minnesota to carry the syndicated show because that would provide an opportunity for Vern to promote his live events off of. So that was what I did. And I loved it. I didn't aspire to be on television. I didn't want anything to do with it. Vern was no, no, because, you know, first of all, I, I was so happy to have the job I had that I didn't want to think about aspiring for something else. I was just thrilled doing what I was doing, and I wanted to do it to the best of my ability so that I could keep that job. Um, yeah. and, and, and Vern was very old school. Like, he kayfabe me for so long. <laughs> I, I wasn't allowed to go anywhere near the, you know, Vern's office was kind of split into two sides. It was the office side, then it was the TV studio. Well, mm-hmm. unless you were a wrestler or part of the production team, you weren't allowed on the production side because Vern didn't want the world to see how the sausage was made. And yeah. unless, you had ever, unless you had right. a job making the sausage, you weren't allowed in the sausage-making room. And so it was a mystery to me, but I was cool with that. Yeah. And it wasn't until a little bit like Gene Okerlund, I was sitting in my office on the office side of the building. Um, Larry Nelson, who was the announcer at the time, um, had a regular go around with a bottle of scotch about every two or three days. He ended up getting a DUI, couldn't make it in on the morning um, of a day when Vern had flown like 40 or 50 people in from all over the country to do market edit promos. You remember what those are. Oh boy. Yeah. So now he's got 40 or 50 wrestlers in a room and no stick man. So I was (laughs) in the building with a tie and uh, shirt and tie. So uh, I think it was Greg Gagne actually came yeah, and got said, yeah. Erica, bring your sport coat and put your tie on and come on over, follow me. So I followed him into the production side of the, you know, and there's like 40, 50 wrestlers. Sergeant Slaughter was there, Ken Patera, and Baron Von Roschke, and, you know, the Sheik was there. It was, you know, kind of a big damn deal for me. Kurt Hennig was there. And uh-huh. I, I think, no, Kurt might not have been there. But anyway, I, I walked in and. Some big names, yeah. <laughs> okay, Eric, here's what you're going to do. Yeah. See that camera? Go stand over there. Now, this is, this is Joe. Joe runs a camera. He's going to go three, two, one, cute. <laughs> and then he's going to go like this. That means you've got 30 seconds. Now, here's what I want you to promote. I want you to promote this match and this match. I want you to tell us where the tickets are available, what time the bell's going to ring, and name the sponsors if there are any. Ready? Five, four, three, two, one. Go. <laughs> <laughs> It was horrifying. Oh. It was so for, and I'll tell you a quick story. My first legit yeah. interview, my the first real one, not the practice ones or anything else. My first, you know, one that was supposed to go to tape yeah. was with Larry Zabisco, right? Yeah. Now, 
There's, right. there's 30, 40, whatever wrestlers standing around watching all this. The new kid, right? The Ken doll. I'd already gotten that name before Scott Hall. Uh, so, uh, and I'm scared to death. And I'm surrounded by all these guys. I'm intimidated. It was a horrible feeling. Sure. And I got Larry Zabisco. Now, Larry and I had become friends. I was a little more comfortable with Larry than I was a lot of the other guys because I didn't know them at all. And uh, I, you know, I, I get my cue and I wind up. And I'm pitching my ass off, and I go to turn to Larry to ask him a question, and he looks at me and he just goes, "Bust out laughing." So did everybody else in the room. And I went, "Man, this could be a long freaking day." But we got through it, and then they fired me. They didn't fire me, but they said, "Thanks for stepping in, and we're going to find somebody to get a job." And they brought, and he actually sucked worse than I did. So, you know, two weeks later, I was back to doing it You're again. You're back in. Then they brought somebody else in, and that person was worse than the first guy they brought in to replace me. So eventually, you know, I kept doing it and doing it and doing it. I think either either I got better at it or they just got used to the pain. I'm not sure which it was. Yeah, you don't know which one it was. Well, I'm, I'm sure. And it's funny because, uh, you know, people will talk to you. You know, kids will come up to you and they ask you, you know, how did you start this? And they think that, you know, you step out in front of there and you're a natural and uh, that isn't the case. And I had, had when, when I went to the WWF, I had done some, you know, camera work. But, you know, it's completely different in a situation like that. And uh, I remember that uh, Howard Finkel, and I was, I'll, I'll talk to you more about him later because, folks, uh, today when we're recording this, we learned that we lost uh, Howard. But, uh, boy, kind of got me a little bit there. Uh, but he was just, you know great with me you know like trying to bring me in and helping me out and he was in charge of the event center and gene just wanted to get the hell out of there he was done he didn't was tired of doing these promos he's just glad some kid came in to, to relieve him but howard was you know he's a ring announcer so he had me telling me you know gotta project john you gotta get it out there and so here i am in the studio situation and i'm saying big event taking place at this at madison and i'm trying to you know listen and this went on for weeks where i couldn't even barely talk and, and, you know, and he would say, uh, you know, you WWF, you got to get. And finally, I, it sounded like I was like the wide mouth frog talking every time I did it. And, you know, I got to the point, I said, Howard, I, I can't keep doing this because, you're gonna, first of all, I saw, I, I saw myself on tape and I'm like, I don't know why they even kept me. But the point of it is, is that people think it just happens. And it took. I mean, I, I can't believe that they let me stick around for those first three months there because if you and I see people put some of that up and it's just awful. So, uh, you know, I, did you you just said you just kept sticking with it and finally it, did it start clicking? What what was it that you finally realized? You know what? Maybe I'm, I might be good at this. You know, it took about a year, I think, before I started actually feeling a little comfortable. And I'll tell you what got me over the hump. First of all, I got a lot of direction from Vern and and, and from Greg, mostly from Vern. Uh, because Vern was very hands-on and he liked to direct talent. He yeah. was really pretty good at it. I mean, if you uh -huh. talk to people who will be honest with you, um, guys like Hulk Hogan, for example, he gives all the credit in the world to Vern Gagne for the Hulk Hogan character. He really taught yeah. Hulk Hogan how to be Hulk Hogan, much more so than Hulk learned in early WWWWWF or whatever the fuck it you was. mean it wasn't Vince? It wasn't Vince? No. I mean, I, <laughs> no, it, it, you go back and listen to some, you know, Hulk's interviews or read his book. It was really Vern Gagne yeah. who taught him how really? to be Hulk Hogan and how to be that character. 
Um, and, and Vern was really good with me. He, he taught me a lot. He taught me about psychology. He taught me about how to carry myself and, and how to be a, a good announcer and how and what not to do. Mo most importantly, you know, because as you know, um, when I having never done it before, you have a tendency to go up and do what you think you're supposed to do instead of just being right. natural. Well, when you start doing what you think you should be doing instead of just being natural, it comes off really bad. Yeah. Uh, so Vern, he, Vern taught me a lot. And then I'll tell you what the, where the transition was for me, where I really got comfortable, is when I started doing play-by-play. -play. I learned so much in play-by-play -play about the psychology of the business, at least the play-by-play -play part, my role in it, yeah. um, that it applied yeah. to you know, do, you know, work in the stick or hosting a show. And that's when I started really getting comfortable is when I started doing play by play. Yeah. Was there somebody in particular, uh, you know, I was fortunate that I had, you know, people like Alfred and, uh, and gorilla and, you know, Bobby that I could actually just watch work and, uh, did a lot of stuff with Alfred. And he taught me the business because I really didn't know, you know, like you said, the Cape Fabe side of it. And back then it was still pretty uh, heavy. It, is there, Somebody that, you know, besides Vern, that really had an influence on you as far as uh, you developing, like you say, as play-by-play or as an announcer? Well, I mean, Vern, first and foremost, uh, Mike Shields, yeah. certainly. Um, you know, Lee Marshall was, was the guy that I got to work with who was a professional broadcaster. Um, he helped me quite a bit. Um, but it, I, would, I would really say it was Vern. Because it was mm. Vern that Vern helped me understand that in play by play, my job was to paint a picture of what was happening. You know, and he used to say, "Assume that the audience that's that's listening to the show can't see it. Imagine that yeah. they're blind. Do your best to paint that picture in such a way that if a blind person is sitting in a room with a television on, they can picture it. Let the color color commentator add the." The sizzle, the little nuggets that, mm. that kind of move story along or move character along. But my job, as it was described to me by Vern, was to really paint that picture and to create a sense of the dramatic, you know, by kind of highlighting, you know, an arm drag or a drop kick and react to it like it's really happening in front of you, even though it wasn't. I was calling it on right. a monitor. But yeah. I, I learned how to let my imagination kind of run my mouth, so to speak. And it was easier for me to it was easy for me to imagine that I was sitting at ringside and I just got lost in it. Once I learned how to call the action, I think my biggest asset was allowing myself to get lost in it like a fan would who happened to have to have the best seat in the house. And yeah. It, it just works for well, me. I, you know, and Eric, I don't know if, if you look at it in a sense that sometimes you get on a track in life and you just kind of go down and there's, you know, it goes off one way or another, but uh, that it's kind of that there's like this destiny. I don't know. I, I felt that way back then that these things would happen. And um, for you, uh, with the AWA, is it, I think it was in the late or early 90s when it folds uh, you get an opportunity to go to the WWF, uh, as we know, WWE now. But um, how did that, did that uh, interview opportunity come up? And what do you remember of it? Because I, you and I can compare notes. And I've always wanted to ask you what that experience was like for you. Well, you know, I, I started working for Vernon in 1987, and he was already in bad shape financially. Yeah. I didn't know it at the time, um, but he was. 
And by 1990, it you know, I, I'd gone for months at a time without a paycheck. You know, I had two young kids and couldn't pay my bills and they're repossessing cars out of my driveway and turning off the heat of my house in Minnesota. And it was pretty bad, but I was loyal to Vermont. And I, well, I was desperate, but I was also loyal. So I actually, I saw an ad in a paper in the Sunday paper of Minneapolis that WWE was looking for announcers. And I went to Vern and I said, Vern, you know, I'm not going to do anything behind your back. You know, I, I, I want to let you know that I'm interested in doing this, but I, I, I won't do it without your support. And he said, absolutely, go do it. You, you need to do mm-hmm. what you need. To do, and I fully support you. So I went and I did the interview or I, I did the audition. And uh, it was a big, I desperately needed the job, Sean. It's hard to describe how broke I was. Yeah. And, you know, I, my kids were so young and, you know, we were eating hot dogs and beans and rice and heating the house with propane heaters that I would buy at the local target and kerosene heaters and things like that. That really wasn't that safe, by the way. So I really, really needed the job. And I was excited. You know, I I went out and I I think I bounced a check in order to buy a suit (laughs) and to to look as good as I could because I didn't really have one other than my AWA jacket and that had a logo on it. I couldn't take it. So I, you know, I got to, I got picked up at the airport, you know, at LaGuardia, and they put me across the street at the hotel, the whatever it was, the Marriott at the time. Yeah, right. Limo came and got me in the morning, drove me over to the studios, you know, about nine o'clock, nine thirty. Walked into the studios, and I was like, wow, it was like ten times bigger than Vern's studio, right? Yeah. I, I was just like, ooh, ah. And then, uh, and I don't know who I met. I think Pritchard said he was in the room. I don't remember Pritchard. He, he, I'm sure he was. But, you know, yeah. I, Vince, and Kevin, Vince McMahon and Kevin Dunn were on a, on a microphone. They were on a speaker, right? They said, okay, yeah. kid, grab it. are one. Yeah, all right. Tell me about yourself, kid. What's Vern Gagnola? So, you know, Vince was interviewing me, really, um, on camera. And then it was the famous scene where he said, okay, I want you to, I want you to sell me this broom. Yeah. I'm like, what? And somebody walked over yeah. and he handed me a broom. All right, kid. Three, two, one. Sell me that broom. And I just did my best. You yeah. know? And people send me clips. I don't know. probably ended up on the network somewhere. And everybody, every once in a while, grabs it. And they send it to me. And it, it makes me laugh slash horrifies me to this day. Really? <laughs> and I didn't- I, I've, never, I've never seen mine. And I, I would probably be the same way. I don't know what in the world got me that job uh, to think about it because I remember going up there and being absolutely intimidated, like you said, and going in. I think what it was is that I just totally said, you know what? At the at the very least, it's going to be a great experience. I'll have a great story to tell. And I really just re- relaxed. And I, I can't, you know, you talk about who was there. Bruce I says he was there. I guess he was there. I, I, Vince was there. But I remember the broom thing that they had me sell me the broom. And uh, Bruce, I've heard him, he talked about it on uh, his podcast with, with Conrad. That you know, He said, yeah, Mooney did a really good job with it. And I, honest to God, I can't remember a, a, a second of it. And I just remember the one thing that I did do at the end is I figured, well, they're going to probably all the, have all these people reading the same thing over and over again. I said, I need to do something different. And I came up with this skit about, you know, you know, Come out and, and 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 rejoice and admit you're a wrestling fan and you love the WWF or something like that. I can't even remember what it was, but I think that I, I remember Vince like thinking that with the you know 
that that was something extra that he wasn't expecting. But I remember, and I have to tell you this, that at that time was like in 91 and we, we needed, uh, we wanted to get another announcer in there because I, I wanted to start doing some other stuff, you know, doing the more feature work and, and get some relief from that event center. And they brought, you know, we're bringing people in. And when I found out that you had auditioned at that time and they hired, I don't know the timeline, but they hired that guy Murray from Detroit, who was a radio guy. You probably heard the stories about this guy. He ended up, they were on, uh, you know, the talk shows with Vince and everything. But anyway, when I heard, I'm like, they hired him over Eric Bischoff. Like, if, if you would have been there, I would have been like, this is fantastic because we could have done the event center and I could have done other things. But it didn't work out that way. And I ended up doing a 100 markets a week for another year or, you know, or two. So it's funny how it plays out. But it worked out well for you, I'd say. Well, it, eventually it did, you know, <clears throat> it's, it's kind of interesting to think, you know, and, and I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the past, but every once in a while, yeah. I, 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 to, to kind of be in the moment, I think about what would have happened if, you know, yeah. what would have happened if I got hired by WWF back in 91? You know, I probably wouldn't have ended up in WCW more, more than likely. Right. Um, yeah. Had that not had w, had I not gone to WCW, none of the Monday Night War stuff would have ever happened. Right. And when you start thinking about life, not just you know, wrestling or careers, but when you start thinking about just those moments in your life that at the time you don't really think about how significant they are or not, but when you look back, you go, "Wow, you know, what if I would have gotten hired right. WWF?" my life would have turned out completely differently. And so would a lot of other people's, by the way. Um, or, yeah, I mean, you can, go, you can drive yourself crazy looking at that. But I often think about that. And, you know, especially my history with WWF, you know, applying for a job in 91, not getting hired, going yeah. head, head with them, Monday Night Wars, then going there as a talent, then being gone for a while, then getting hired as an executive director, then getting let go. I mean, it just seems like WWF's, WWE has been in my life one way, shape, or form, um, really, since the early 90s. And um, yeah. just interesting, I guess. Yeah, but it's all about opportunity, and, and the WCW did happen. And uh, how did that chance come about? Because uh, after that, you're probably thinking, now, now what the hell do I do? Uh, and then the WCW comes along. Well, it I, you know, I stuck with Vern and things got progressively worse. Right. Yeah. The handwriting was on the wall and it was the same thing. Um, I had heard, and I'm, I can't remember how I heard it, but I had heard that WCW was looking for announcers. I didn't even know what WCW was because we didn't get TBS yeah. in Minneapolis, or at least if we did get it, I never watched it. But somebody told me about it and I had an agent at the time because I was a print model and, and commercial actor and I had a had an agent, her name was Stevie Kozachuk. And I said, Stevie, do me a favor. You know, the guy's name is Jim Hurd. Just put together, you know, send him a couple headshots, a couple videotapes of some of the commercial work I've done. Send him some of the Vern Gagne stuff. And let's just see if there's any interest. So uh -huh. my agent sent it off to Jim Hurd. And then I got a, a call back, yeah, really within days and got the opportunity to come down and audition for WCW. Well, and uh, one thing led to another. And uh, you, you talk about those early days where 
uh, you were, you know, as they refer to you, the third announcer, and that initially you didn't get a whole lot of respect there. What were those those early days of the WCW like? Uh, for me, well, first of all, when when I my wife and I lived in a, a house out in a rural part of Minneapolis called Prior Lake. Uh-huh. And again, our kids were really young. It's 1991. We we're flat ass broke. We we had a mattress on the floor. We didn't have a box spring or you know a bed or anything. We just had a mattress on the floor. And I remember uh, we had a phone in the room, a hard line. And I remember when I got that phone call from WCW, Jim Hurd's office, asking me to come in for an audition. I literally, you know, I jumped probably four feet in the air. I was uh-huh. so excited because, again, we were we we were desperate. Yeah. When I was working for Vern, I was making six hundred dollars a week, right? Thirty grand a year, a little more than thirty grand a year, and just uh-huh. barely getting by. And then, of course, when he quit paying me, you know, obviously I didn't have a lot of money in the bank, so things got real tough. When I got to got to the audition for WCW, and I've told the story many times, but my audition was with Diamond Dallas Page, who I worked with in in AWA. By the way, uh-huh. I had known Page. We didn't really get along all that well. Last time I had seen Paige, we ended up in a pull apart and almost got into a fight in a hotel <laughs> after, after after TV taping. So Paige wasn't my favorite person, nor was was I his. But he was going to be my color commentator for this audition. And when I found out, you know, I went from being completely elated right. because I got this audition and I felt pretty confident in my ability. And then I find out that Diamond Dallas Page is going to be my, you know, my partner in this audition. I went, oh, he's going to bear it. Yeah. Because he had already been there. He was he was already there. He was established. Yeah. And it was exactly the opposite. You know, and this is this is like if you want a definition of Diamond Dallas Page, even back then, this is him. Mm-hmm. Despite the you know rough relationship that he and I had together, you know, previous to that, he sat down and he said, Look, this is what they're looking for. I know what they're looking for because I've been hearing them talk about it now for weeks. This is what they're looking for. Here's how you should, you know, carry yourself in this, you know, in, in this play-by-play. Here's here's a list of the kind of things that they they like to hear. He really coached me through, wow. Wow. and I I did the you know I did the uh, audition with him. Uh, Keith Mitchell sent the audition tape up to Jim Hurd while I was eating lunch at the CNN Center. You know, praying, keeping my fingers crossed. You know, talking to Buddha. You name it, I was doing it, and. Uh, they finally called me up and said, uh, all right, kid, you're hired. 70 grand. Wow. You know, it, it, to me at that time, $70,000 yeah. a year was like 700000 a year. You know, yeah. I, I was just elated. And I had a blast, you know, while I was the, the third string announcer. I didn't care. I didn't yeah. have anything to go. I just wanted to do the best job I could do. I did as much as I could do. I'd volunteer for anything and everything. And uh, I, I had a ball doing it. So as it went along, uh, did you start getting more influence, uh, you know, become more comfortable, more confident, and or were you always kind of at that level until things really started to change there? No, I was at that level. Was it a gradual thing? No, it was an overnight thing. You know, I was the no. C-Squad announcer, you know, all the way up through, you know, I survived Jim Hurd, I survived Kip Fry. Um, Bill Watts was in charge 
And at, at the time Bill Watts was in charge, I was fed up with it. I hated Bill Watts. I always say hate. I don't like to use that word. Mm. I didn't like Bill Watts at all. I didn't have any respect for Bill Watts, zero respect for him because of the way he treated people. He was a bully. You know, he's an insecure mm. bully, in my opinion. And But he was a big guy, so he could get away with it, right? right. He never impressed me. And after a couple months of Bill Watts, I told my wife, I said, you know, this is going to work for me. You know, I'm, I'm going to find something else. And I was actually out in L.A. pitching television shows. I had pitched a show to back then Fox had a kids network called the Fox Kids Network on Saturday mornings. They had a block from like eight to 11. And I pitched a show along with Jason Hervey, um, pitched a show to them that they bought. And I thought, well, you know, oh, that was easy enough. (laughs) I just I flew out there, took two meetings, sold a show. This I'm going to move to Hollywood. Anybody could do this. Right. So I was on my way uh, out. And then right about the time, eh, maybe a couple of weeks before I was ready to give my notice, um, Watts got fired for some stupid shit uh, that he deserved mm-hmm. to be fired for. And Bill Shaw came down. Bill was the vice president of human resources at Turner Broadcasting. He wasn't a WCW guy. He was a Turner Broadcasting guy that reported directly to Ted Turner. And Bill came down and laid down a law. And he said, look, Ted is within five minutes of pulling the plug on this company. He's had it. Yeah. The stuff, you know, I'm not going to go into the stuff that Bill did, but I, anybody that's hearing this probably knows. Yeah. It was very high profile, very ugly, very uncomfortable, especially for Ted Turner and a company like Turner Broadcasting in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So it, we were on thin ice, and Bill was very honest about it. He said, look, this company's been losing $10, 15000000 million a year. It's nothing but bad PR. Nobody else in Turner Broadcasting wants this company to exist. The only reason it does is because Ted Turner likes the content. But... If you guys can't figure out a way to turn this thing around in less than a year, they're going to pull the plug. So, yeah. I, 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 you know, I figured, well, I've got nothing to lose, right? I mean, what's the worst going to happen? I'm going to stick around for a year and they're going to pull the plug, or I can throw my name in the hat. Because by that time, I had seen enough of WCW. I had learned enough about the business working for Vern. And, again, I'll, I'll make this point because I often don't make this. When I was working for Vern – you know, first of all, I got the opportunity to work for Vern because Vern was broke. He couldn't f- afford to hire anybody that was actually good at what I was doing. Right? <laughs> yeah. He could afford me because I would have worked for free. Yeah. But in the environment that I was in with Vern, I got to learn production. Mm-hmm. I got to learn how to edit. I got to learn how to run a camera. I got to be a fly on the wall and listen to Vern and Greg direct talent during interviews. Right. And learn that process just by being a fly on the wall for a couple of years. I I, I got to promote live events. I put together corporate sponsorships with one of the biggest beer companies in in the Midwest for a touch football game that, you know, drew over 10,000 people at the Hubert H. Humphrey Metrodome and raised one hundred fifty thousand dollars. I did a lot of stuff and learned about the business of the wrestling business only because. I was in the right place at the right time, and you know, Vern couldn't afford to hire anybody that was actually good at, good at it. So I got to learn on the job. So by the time I had a couple of years, you know, with Vern doing all of those, the only thing I never did was wrestle or put up a ring when I worked for Vern. Those are the only two things I didn't do. Everything else about the business I did a lot of. And then when I got to WCW, I was able to, again fly on the wall, third string quarterback, right, sat on the bench most of the time. And just watched. But by that time, I had a pretty 
strong opinion about what was right and what was wrong with WCW. So when Bill Shaw kind of laid down the law and said, all right, we're looking for an executive producer, somebody not from the wrestling world. We're not looking mm-hmm. for another wrestler to come in and be the head of the company because that hasn't been working out for them. Um, we want somebody that understands television. Well, I kind of understood television and, and felt like I'm going to at least throw my name in the hat. And I did and ended up getting the job as, as executive producer. But that literally, you know, looking back at it, it didn't happen overnight, but it kind of did. It was a very, I went from leaving the company because I hated, I didn't like working for Bill Watts to being the executive producer, overseeing all of the television production within a period of about a week. Well, and and you look at it probably back then, people were just, you know, floored that you got that position, but it sounded like two people felt you could do the job, you and Bill Shaw, and uh, and you felt you were prepared for it. And, you know, folks, we're not going to go into all of the Monday Night Wars. It has been well documented. There are books. And if you really want to get to the source, tune into 83 Weeks every week with Eric and Conrad. But I have to tell you, Eric, one thing that has intrigued me about, you know, all the reading I've done about it and, of course, listened to, it, what really stands out to me is when you were making, when, when you were taking over there, you realized early on that you were not going to compete doing what the WWF, WWE did, that you could beat them by being different. And did that come to you at that point in time, or had you looked at things that way before? Because that's what made the difference. I'm not sure, you know, when that reality or when that realization started forming in my head. It became crystal clear when I was in a meeting with Ted Turner and, and you know, going head-to-head with WWF at the time, WWF, was never a topic of conversation. It wasn't a thought in my mind. I didn't, never even thought about it. You know, the only thing I was focused on was making a dollar a profit. Because WCW had never made $1 profit. They had been losing millions of dollars every year, sometimes 10, sometimes 8, sometimes 15, but they had never turned a profit. And everybody within Turner Broadcasting was convinced that it was impossible to turn a profit. So that was my motivation. I just want to make, I, and I don't want to be, make $20 million. I just want to make $1. Yeah. I didn't want to make $2. I just want to make $1. I want to be the first guy to turn a dollar a profit in, in WCW. So that was the only thing I was focused on. And, and as a part of that process, um, I had a meeting with Ted Turner on another, to talk about another piece of business that had nothing to do with WWF. It was, it was to discuss international programming. I wanted to do a deal with Star TV, which was owned by Rupert Murdoch. Ted Turner and Rupert Murdoch were like this, right? Yeah, so yeah, I had right. to I get permission from Ted in order to do a bit, to do a deal with Rupert Murdoch's company. That was the reason for the meeting. And I got into that meeting and you've probably heard the story. I won't repeat it again, but within about 45 seconds, Ted completely abandoned the conversation about doing the deal with Rupert Murdoch's company and asked me point blank, what do we got to do to compete with Vince McMahon and the WWF? And the only thing I could think of, and I went back to, you know, I also, I didn't bring this up, but in addition to, you know, martial arts and wrestling, I also was a Golden Globes boxer. I trained with some Golden Globes boxers. Mm -hmm. And the first thing you learn in boxing when you're getting your brains, you know, punched out is to kind of tuck your chin, you know, look up over your... You know, protect yourself, keep your chin in your chest and try not to get hit till you figure out what to do next. And 
I, I was kind of in my own mind, tucking my chin and covering up, trying, okay, now what am I supposed to say? I can't bullshit <laughs> the turner. I just pointed out the obvious. I said, well, Ted, you know, we're at 6.05 Eastern on Saturday, which is 3.05 Pacific, right, on a Saturday. They're at prime time Monday nights. I'm not sure we can compete like that. And then he looked over at Scott Sasso, who was in the room, and said, "Uh, Scott, uh, give Eric, you know, two hours every Monday night, head-to-head with WWF. And he went, oh, shit. <laughs> Scott Sasso, who was the heir apparent to Ted Turner at the time, he was like, what the fuck? <laughs> Harvey Schiller, who was my boss, was in the room, and he just, he was looking around, and noisy he had never heard before. He was kind what of, just where, happened? Where, where did that come from? <laughs> I, I, and I walked out of there going, okay, I'm going to do one of two things. I'm either going to fail miserably or I'm going to succeed like nobody's ever imagined. There's only two choices. I'm either going to succeed or I'm going to fail. And I didn't want to fail. So I I went, I literally, I I know people don't believe me because I say this and people go, okay, right. But I literally locked myself in my office for eight or 10 hours. Wouldn't take a phone call. Wouldn't talk to anybody. Wouldn't let anybody come into my office. I sat there with a, a, a yellow legal pad and a pen and a ruler, and I drew a line down the middle of the page, and I said, okay, I'm either going to be better than the WWF, less than the WWF, or different than the WWF. Those are my only three choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No way I'm going to be better. They've been around for two generations, three generations. They've, you know, They were the incumbent. They had a big foothold of, you know, the 80s. I mean, they were huge, right? So there's no way I'm going to be better than them at what they do. But what they did at that time, the tone of their content was very, um, you know, the characters were very animated. They were very, I I say cartoonish, and I don't mean that derisively, but they were characters. They were characters that appealed to teens and Mm preteens because that's where their money was. That's licensing and family family entertainment. That's where the money was. Right. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, well, I can't do that. There's no way I'm going to be better than them at that. I absolutely don't want to be less than them. So I've really only got one choice. I don't have three choices. I have one choice. I have to be different. And then, and that's when it crystallized. I thought, okay, if I have to be different, I've got to figure out how to be different. So I made a list of all of the, the strengths of WWF. And I took each one of them and went, okay, how can I do that differently? Starting with, you know, they're a tape show. Good. I'm going to be live. They have very animated characters that are targeted towards teens and preteens. Cool. I'm going to go 18 to 39 male. And I literally made a list of all the ways that I could be different. Some of them made sense. Some of them didn't. And I, once I got through that process in my head and could see that picture and, and convince myself that it was the right thing to do, then I became like, you know, have you ever been around an alcoholic who, you know, finally gets clean and sober and has been clean and sober for many, many years and is kind of an evangelist, you know, for the 12 step program or somebody that finds religion, you know, that had never found religion before, mm-hmm. you know, they, they can't stop talking about it. That was me with the, my vision of being different than the WWF because I could see it in my head. It made sense to me. I believed it, and I could 
more importantly, I could see the picture in my head. And that's what I knew. When I can see the picture, when sometimes I'll hear an idea or, or I'll come up with my own ideas and it's, it, 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 there's no picture. It's sketchy. It's fuzzy. It's, it'll come in and it'll go out. And, you know, I just can't hang on to the visual that I, I need to see in my head. And there are other times when I'll be on a treadmill and I'll have an idea and it's like looking at a movie in my head. It's literally like a movie. And it plays out like a movie. And that's when I know if it's good or bad for me. Mm. And, yeah. and I could see it in my head. I could see the movie in my head. And that's, we moved forward with Reckless Abandon once I got there. But until I could see how to be different. And I live by that to this day. You know, you got three choices. Better than, worse than, different than. What do you want to do? You know, if you want to be better than yeah. something, you better have a big set of balls and lots of money. Because it's never as easy as it looks. You know, nobody wants to be less than, but anybody can be different. That's where it takes creativity. And when I look at things now, you know, I look at WWE now, and obviously we both have friends there, and I have a lot of respect for from Vince on down. You know, I've got nothing but good things to say about WWE, even after my life. In fact, because of my last experience, where I really got to know everybody a little bit better. Um, but their content is flat. Up until WrestleMania, when we saw the Boneyard match and the Firefly Funhouse, I mean – I, literally, you could watch one match from two months ago and watch one match from seven years ago, and eh, it's kind of the same thing. And they need to find a way to be different from, from themselves, really, because I, I think it's the audience has become saturated with the product as it has been for the last 10 years. They've just seen it all and seen enough of it. And I think they've reached a certain level um, where you know, a certain amount of people are going to hang with it. But, the, you know, you look at Monday Night Raw, you know, they're doing 2.1, 2.2, 2.3, maybe 2.4 million people during the, depending on the time of year. SmackDown came out of the shoot at 3.8. Now it's hovering about 2.5 consistently because until they find out a way to, to, to present something that's different than what they've been doing for the last decade, they're going to hold steady at that plateau. You look at AEW, started out with 1.5 million viewers on their debut night, something like that, a little more than that. Yeah. You know, now coronavirus, you know, empty arena stuff aside, we'll just put that off at the side. They were hovering around that 700, 800,000 viewer level, which is you know, almost half of what they started out with. They're not really that different. It's different talent, but the presentation isn't really that much different. Um, somebody's got to come up with something new and something exciting that changes the industry in order to reinvigorate the industry. And if they do, they'll come back. We saw that with SmackDown premiere on Fox. Now, granted, Rock was all over it and Fox spent a fortune promoting it. But nonetheless, 3.8 million viewers showed up to sample the product. If they would have liked what they've seen, you know, the second week and the third week and the fifth week, they would have stuck around, but they didn't. Yeah. Because it wasn't that different. It was just on a different network. So when, when you look back, though, and uh, maybe initially it was survival and, you, like you said, be different. But uh, and, and, you know, you, you think about, you know, NWO was just this brilliant idea. And then also, I don't even know if you realize, but you had this incredible talent that kind of backed it up. Uh, did you at one point, I don't know when in your life that you look back and said, you know what, I changed an industry. Because when it all comes down to it, 
there's no other period where the the world of professional wrestling changed more and for the better. And and I think that you know for the WWE it forced them to raise their their product level. Uh, but the other side of it is professional wrestlers, and I hope a few have thanked you that they have guaranteed contracts, which I remember when I worked there, those guys were working for house show gates. So uh, do you look at it and, and, and are you you know able to say, you know what? Yeah, I did that. You know, I didn't really think about it at all until probably 10 years ago, maybe even mm-hmm. not that long ago. Um, because I didn't really reflect on it. You know, when I left WCW, I had a really bad taste in my mouth. I really did for a lot of reasons. And a lot of people, and a lot some, of people did too. Some of it was self-inflicted, you know? I mean, I, I was responsible for some of it, the way I felt. Um, <clears throat> and I kind of put it in my rear view mirror and I didn't think about it at all. Then I got hired by WWE as a talent. And I had a whole different perspective, but I didn't think about WCW really. It wasn't until after I left WWE in 2005 or six, whatever it was, seven, that I started to reflect back and went, wow, you know, kind of like we talked about earlier, had, had it not been for Nitro, had it not been for that moment when I sat in a room by myself and decided the only way to launch Nitro is to be different than the WWF and to identify all the ways to achieve that, had I not done that, Nitro wouldn't have been a success. Had the NWO not you know, happened, the Monday Night Wars would have never happened. The Attitude Era would have never happened. Monday Night Raw going live every Monday night would not have happened. If you make a list of all the things that would not have happened, had it not been for Nitro, and the NWO and the competition that it created for the WWF, I think this is going to sound way over the top, but I think it's, I think it's arguable that WWE might not be around today because it was that Monday night war that elevated the industry as a whole. And yeah. certainly WWE coming out on top and the momentum that they had created with the rock and stone cold, Steve Austin, that was a result of the competition. Yeah. I think had had the Monday Night Wars not happened, I'm not sure that WWE would be around today. They, I'm not sure they would have gone public. Um, I'm yeah. not sure they could have gone well, public. So many people benefited from that. Yeah, so many, so many uh, people and the industry has benefited by it. And, and especially, I mean, the WWF was in trouble then when that all started. And, you know, it raised them to a lo- new level and went on for years and uh, beyond that. Um, sure, Sean, that, that I'm clear about this. I'm not taking credit for WWF success or WWE success. I don't mean to suggest no. that. No, I'm not. You're saying the situation that, that, that everything that was involved in that because of that competition, it forced the W it's like, okay, you want to, they're going to put you out of business. And so it raised the level of everybody involved. And then, like you said, uh, circumstances, and then you've got somebody like Rock comes along and uh, Stone Cold finds where his place is, and then it happens. But I no, I know you're not saying that. That's not you, that was all you. <laughs> no, not at all. And yeah. but again, it's it's like that. It's like the butterfly effect, I guess. You know, um, yeah. you don't you don't yeah. really realize something. It seems insignificant when it happens, but if you really think about it, the chain reaction of all the things that that are a result of of one decision, one choice, one moment. You know, 
can have on an industry. It's kind of mind-boggling. It's fun to think about. Yeah, it really is. Um, there's so many relationships you developed along the way there, but one I've really been fascinated with is with Hulk Hogan. And I don't think a lot of people know uh, how close that relationship was with you. And uh, first of all, I mean, when you first, you wanted to get him down there, uh, was it a rocky start or did you guys hit it off immediately? And then how did it uh, develop? No, we get along right away. I mean, Hulk's, yeah. I'm sure you've met Hulk. He's, Worked with him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's an easy guy. He's a he's a good-hearted soul. He likes to have fun. Mm -hmm. he, he's an easy guy to get along with. Um, he's pretty chill. He's a beach bum. He's a big, back then, he was a big, strong, talented, charismatic beach bum. He was easy to get along with. Um, but, no, we hit it off pretty, pretty, pretty much right away. Um, I don't, you know, we didn't, we weren't like we were friends right away, but it was easy to do business with him. Um, we, be, we started becoming friends pretty quickly. Uh, and to this day, you know, I, uh, I mean, Hulk Hogan is my best friend. You know, we, we still talk a couple times a week and still, you know, hang out with him whenever I'm down in Florida visiting our kids and that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, I always, I always got a lot, I mean, we had our moments, don't get me wrong. There were moments when it was not pretty, and there were moments when it was not comfortable. There were moments when he was frustrated, and so was I. Uh, but that's, you know, that's life. That's working together. You know, nothing's ever perfect. Yeah. And and so when, when this all ended with the WCW, um, I think initially you wanted to get out of the business, but as we both know, it can't, it's just one of the, it just pulls you back in. But, and I didn't know when you started doing these other productions with, with Jason and uh, Hervé, um, how long before that? Did that keep going, or did that all get put on the sideline while those uh, during those years with the, the wars? Or, or were you still doing work outside of that? No, I mean, Jason and I were, you know, we were developing projects for WCW together, mm -hmm. um, you know, because the, the, you know, one of the visions that I had for WCW was to expand beyond wrestling. Much like mm -hmm. WWF has, or WWE has done successfully, right. right. you know, especially when we merged with Time Warner. Wow, well, we've got a movie studio, you know, that we should have some synergy with. So that's how Ready to Rumble, you know, came about. Um, we were working on some animation projects. And, you know, so I was dabbling in non-wrestling related projects, but to benefit WCW. That would have been a part of WCW, not as an independent producer. When I left WCW in 99, mm -hmm. um, I think I coasted for about a year and a half or two years. And then, you know, I, I, you know, I didn't need the money and I was young and whatever. I just wasn't interested in doing anything at the time. Wasn't sure what I was going to do either, yeah. but not feeling any pressure. Um, and that's why, you know, I called up Jason and I said, look, you know, let's pick up where we left off. You've got relationships in Hollywood. I've developed enough of my own. We've got some ideas. We work well together. Let's go pitch some shows. So we started in about 2002, and we're, we had a good run. We were running hard until about 2012, 2013, and that's when the television industry really started changing dramatically. Um, you know, it, we would go from having two shows, three shows a year that we would create and sell and produce 
to one every year and a half. Yeah. And, and, and the budgets, you know, went from here to here and everybody wanted higher, higher quality production values for less money. And, you know, we woke up one day in about 2013 or 2014 and said, wow, you know, the good news is, you know, we brought in $1.8 million in business production dollars. The bad news is we made 1.8% profit on it because yeah. the, the, margin, <laughs> the margins just got crushed. And it's funny, you know, I thought you know, one of my a good friend of mine is a guy by the name of Tom Beers. Tom, I've known, Tom was... Uh, Tom headed up National Geographic for Turner Broadcasting when I was running WCW. And we've remained friends. Tom went on to become one of the most successful non-scripted television producers in Hollywood, second only to probably Mark Burnett. He created mm-hmm. Deadly's Catch and Ice Road Truckers mm-hmm. and West Coast Choppers and you name it. If it's dangerous, it's testosterone-driven reality show, Tom produced it. And, and he's made a fortune you know, he's made more money than God. And he and I were out, we had lunch about a year ago. And he said, we were talking about the television industry and how it's changed. And he said, Eric, if, if, if I had to start over today, even knowing everything that I've learned, even having all of the success that I've had over the last 25 or 30 years, if I had to start from scratch today, I couldn't survive. Went, wow. That's a... That's a hell of a statement about the television industry. It's really changed a lot. So that's why, you know, Jason and I pretty much got out of it about 2000. Uh, I think 2018 was the last show that we sold. Oh, really? What is it uh, that world like, though? I mean, after existing in, in what you were doing with the WCW, and you, you were involved in networks, you're in LA all the time, but a lot of people don't understand, and I, I picked shows before too and and uh you know people don't realize how tough it is i know you said like the first one you had a couple of meetings but what was it like being in that world and and really what does it take to get a show on you know actually get on the air for people to watch because that there's a lot there's thousands of shows that might even get a green light that you never see yeah well you know timing is look the first thing you have to we we learned the first thing you have to know is you have to know your network. You have to know what they're thinking. You have to know where they're going. You can't, you can't walk into a meeting and go, oh, True TV, well, this is what they've been doing for the last two years. If you walk in with that, you know, in your holster, you're going you're gonna to get left for dead. You know what I mean? You, you have to know where they want to be, not where they've been. Because they're making decisions. First of all, if I came into you, Sean, if you were a network executive and I pitched you a show and you went, wow, this is the best idea I've ever heard. I'm going to buy it on the spot right now. It'll take 18 months before it sees the light of day. Yeah. It takes that long. Yeah. And maybe longer in some cases, depending on how complicated the show is. But you may not last two years from now, Right. You may not be there in six months because the turnover in a television industry, you know, if you're a television executive, you walk into a television executive's office in, in Hollywood, they very rarely have pictures of family or dogs or any personal memorabilia on the walls because they all know if you last two years in the network, <laughs> you're like old. You're an old There's time. a box in the corner. Just like. So the, the first thing that we learned is you gotta, you, you've yeah. got you've to gotta pitch the chair, not the person. 
And by that, I mean, you've got to know the network you're pitching. You've got to do your research. Hopefully your agents are smart. They know where the network wants to be a year and a half from now or two years from now. So you take your idea and you shape it towards that goal as opposed to saying, hey, I've got an idea because you used to do this show. I saw it last month. So I'm going to pitch a show because it's kind of like that. They've probably already left that strategy behind. Yeah. So my, my point is you've got to know your network. You've got to do your research. Um, and it, it's, it's tough. You know, here's the other thing that's tough about it. And I, sh I should be careful how I say this because I'm not completely out of that business yet. But, um, all right, there's no way to say it without just saying it. <laughs> the majority of people that I've ever pitched are the least creative, least imaginative, same yeah. thing I guess, most job-scared people I've ever met in my life. Yeah. They, they're way more comfortable saying no because you can't get fired for saying no. You can get fired for saying yes and having something not work out. And by the way, I think the odds of any, if, if I pitched you a show, you loved it, we actually made it to air, the chances of that show being successful are about one in 10 or one in eight. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a little bit like going to Vegas, you know, the odds are really against yeah. you. But here's the good news. If you, if you create a show, you pitch a show, and you, and you hit, you can, I mean, you look at shows like Biggest Loser. You look at show, I mean, what, what is the dating show where the guy gives a girl a rose and The Bachelor? Oh, the, the Bachelor and Bachelorette, yeah. Yeah. Really? That show has been on for yeah. how long? Since the beginning of well, look, How about Survivor? Somebody came up with just going to drop these people on an island. I would have loved to have been Jeff Probst to get that job. My God. <laughs> you know, like. Well, and there's an interesting story yeah. behind that. I don't know if you know the story behind that at all, but, you know, Mark Burnett is a real entrepreneur. Yeah. I'm not going to try to tell the story here because we'll be here till tomorrow morning. But, you know, everybody turned that show down. Nobody wanted that really? show. Really? Every wow. he pitched that show to passed on it. And then Mark believed in it so much that he went and convinced several rather large sponsors to take the financial risks so the network didn't have anything to lose. Now, as a result, Mark ended up owning much more of the show than he would have otherwise, because whoever writes the check owns the show, right? So if the network, typically the network pays for everything on the show, and you get a percentage of it as your, your fee. But when you walk in with a show that you found a way to pay for, so the network doesn't have to write a check, yeah. you end up owning a big part of that show, and that's what catapulted Mark Burnett. You know, you look at your list of your shows and uh, it it's really stands out, like you said, different. I just look at this. I'm like, every one of these things that he produced is so different than the next. And one of them, and you get grief sometimes about your, your uh, the reality shows with Scott Bio. But um, we at that time, when you think about those shows and then look what's happened since then with these reality shows. So at, at that point. When, when you were doing that, were you saying, you know, I have a feeling this stuff is going to work, that, that, that people want to see this stuff? Well, I mean, the Scott Baio show was a good example. You know, that was, I can't remember what year that was. It all runs together for me now. Yeah. Probably 2008, I'm thinking, or 2009. But that's when celebrity, that was the buzzword. Yeah. Every Absolutely. network wanted celebrity. Yeah. And Jason Hervey had a great relationship with Scott Baio. They had known each other since they were kids. Um, Scott's a super nice guy. I get along with Scott really well. So because of Jason, really not me, 
we were able to go to Scott and said, hey, let's, you know, let's do a show called Scott Baio's 45 and Single. Because he was. He was 45 and single. He was a very popular guy with the ladies in Hollywood. Um, and was known for that. So we did that show. And it was a huge success. And when that show was over, again, because of the length of time it takes to sell a show, pitch a show, develop a show, shoot a show, and then see it on TV is about a year and a half, two-year window. Well, we finished, we wrapped on the show, got it up on a year, and then Scott got married. Uh-huh. So wanted to do another Scott Baio season. So, okay, what are we going to do? He's not 45 and single. He's 46 and married. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, but, but again, that was very celebrity-driven. The Hulk Hogan Celebrity Championship Wrestling that we did for CMT. I didn't want to use celebrities. I really didn't. Mm. Um, I wanted to use real people. But the network wanted celebrities. So we got Dustin Diamond and Aaron Murphy that used to be the bewitched girl and, you know, Tiffany and Dennis Rodman. And, you know, we got all these celebs, Danny Bonaducci. And, you know, we had a whole whole trailer full of celebrities trying to become wrestlers uh, because that's what the networks wanted at the time. So, you know, we had primarily because of Jason, we had good relationships with B-list celebrities. So we were able to get a lot of them, you know, integrated into our shows. What was a tougher pool to swim in, wrestling or, or Hollywood? What was it? What, what was the tougher? What was the tougher pool to swim in, Hollywood or, or professional wrestling? Oh, I think professional wrestling is harder. Really? Poli- really? Yeah, the politics. Look. It's a universe of one. You know what I mean? It's really tough in today's environment. Now, when there was WWF and WCW and there was still some territories, it was a little bit different. But now, yeah, it's tougher now, I think, in wrestling. At least in Hollywood, you know, now it's different today than it was even five years ago. But when we were really active in it, you know, we had – six or eight networks that we could call up the network president, not, not the executive in charge of buying shows or, you know, a VP. We could call up the head of the network and say, Hey, we've got a hot one. Can we meet you for a cocktail or meet you for lunch and stop by the office? And we, you know, we had enough credibility that we could get those meetings pretty easily. Uh, so that made mm-hmm. it easier in a way, but again, you know, none of it's easy. It's all tough. You know, I don't think anything that's worthwhile is easy. Yeah. So what was it like going back to the, the WWE? I've, I've always, always, always wondered, uh, you know, I've been, I've been back a couple of times, but not invited back. And, and what was it like for you to go back into that world? And, and you were actually there in Stanford. Are you at my, my most recent run? Um, yeah. It was, you know. You had Vince, has Vince changed uh, as far as working with him? You know, here's, I don't know because I never worked. I mean, I worked with Vince a little bit when I was a talent there. I would yeah. interface with Vince and there were some, you know, there were scenes that we would do together or occasionally he would produce something that I was involved in. But my interaction with him was extremely limited. I mean, I never really, really. never really got to know Vince McMahon when I was there as a talent other than, you know, the occasional interface that yeah. we would have with regard to something we were doing on television. Um, but it was rare. So I never really got to know Vince as a talent. Um, 
I, I kind of felt like I knew him through other people, but I never really developed my own. We never went out and we never had a serious conversation about anything, you know, which mm -hmm. was kind of weird. You would think at, at some point, either one of us would have instigated a or initiated a conversation to kind of talk about what were you really thinking when I was doing this? Hey. You know? What yeah. was the reaction? What were you, you know, it would have been fun to have that. So you've never had that conversation about like uh, what was going on then or. No, never. Even Wow. That's, right. that's amazing. And so going back, um, yeah. you know, it was, it was weird. Um, part of me was really excited about it because I missed the business and there mm -hmm. were people at WWE to this day that I consider some of my closest friends that I was anxious to work with again. You know, Kevin Dunn and his team, you know, I mean, that that team is second to none on the planet. Yeah. They're so capable of doing so many amazing things, as evidenced by the Firefly Funhouse and the Boneyard Match and all the other things that they've done over the decades. Um, and I was really excited. You know, Bruce was there, and, and I love Bruce Pritchard. You know, other than Hulk, he's you know, one of my closest friends. Yeah. Um, so I felt good about it and I missed it. You know, I wanted to give, I was hoping to find that, that desire, that passion, you know, that I had missed because I'd been away from it for so long, but truth yeah. be told, it, it didn't happen, you know, and it didn't happen for a lot of reasons. And I, it, me really, it was, yeah. it was my failure to adapt. It was my yeah. failure to find a way to find that passion and cultivate that passion within an environment that was totally, totally alien to who I am. You know, I'm not a, you know, and I, this is going to sound so childish, but it's true. I'm not a suit and tie guy. I'm just not, you know, yeah. when, when I'm at my creative best and when my passion flows, it's because I'm in the right room with the right people. We're relaxed. The chemistry's got to be right. And I think it's true for everybody. It's not just me. Chemistry is everything in the creative process. Yeah. If you could be the most creative person in the world, and I could be the most creative person in the world, and this person could be the most creative, we could all be in our own ways, unique ways, some of the most creative people at our jobs. But if we don't like each other or we just haven't learned to communicate with each other, we don't have to yeah. dis we just haven't really bonded or or found that energy and it's kind of like harmony, you know, until you until you finally find a way to hit that note together, it's just chunky and clunky. And that's kind of the way I felt the whole time I was there. And that was on me. Did you know right away? Did you know right away that this isn't right? I knew within the first couple of weeks. That it was going to be hard because I really tried. I mean, I wanted to, but I couldn't. I couldn't really get close to Vince. I couldn't really break that wall. You know, um, there were a lot of things going on. I'm not going to go into them, but there was a lot of challenges that were going on at the time that had nothing to do with me. That yeah. everything was very disoriented um, and a little confusing. Uh, prior to me getting there and certainly even after I got there. And I was, you know, hoping that once that dust settled and things settled in, we got launched on Fox that we'd be able to get into that groove. Um, but I, but again, that's my responsibility to make that happen. I, I you know, I, in reflection and reflecting on it a little bit, I realized, you know, a couple of weeks after I left, 
that it wasn't up to Vince McMahon or WWE as a whole to adapt to Eric Bischoff. It was up to Eric Bischoff to adapt to their environment. And I, I failed at that. I, I wasn't able to do it. Well, it, it seemed like uh, you were at peace with it right away. I think that uh, when you when you walked away from it, when it was over, that, uh, you know, I, hearing you talk on your show and, and uh, everything else that went with that, it wasn't like, damn it, you know, that uh, it just didn't work. But uh, you seem like you're also in a point in your career that, you know, uh, you're, you're more uh, trying to make sure you're happy <laughs> and not proving something. Well, yes and no. I mean, look, I wanted it to work. I, I mean, I took it as Did a you have something to prove, though? Did you feel like, you know, I, I, I got to go back there and, you know, I feel like in some ways it's like, you know, Bruce and I love him and I, and I, I worry about his health because and, and, put, and going and jumping back into that, I just felt like he had unfinished business. Did you feel that way? No, no, I, I didn't feel, I mean, I, I, no, I didn't feel that at all. I really, I, I wanted to work with, because Bruce and I worked together at TNA. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it right. didn't happen overnight, but we eventually we really clicked, you know, and it took a little while. Um, but the chemistry was good. Obviously, we had a lot of affection for each other, respect for each other. Um, we liked hanging out together, um, which matters. You know, some of the best ideas that Bruce and I came up with, we came up with, you know, shooting the shit over a pizza mm-hmm. as opposed to sitting in a, in a sterile room with a notepad in our, you know, $1,200 suits with a rope around her neck. I mean, it's high. Um, it, it's just different. So I was really anxious to work with Bruce as well as other people in WWE. And more than anything, Sean, I was hoping to find that passion that had been missing, you know, for quite a while about the wrestling business. And I really hoped and thought that once I stepped back in it and once I got into the groove that that fire would, would light up again. And because of the situation and my failure to adapt to it, it just didn't. Yeah. So what's next? I mean, you've got, uh, I know that there was the, the Hulk biopic that was in the works. And I mean, what, what, you, what do you have on the platter now? Are you just going to take it easy for a while? What, what, are, you gonna, what are you doing? Besides no. 83 weeks, of course. The podcast, <laughs> you know, I love doing that. It's fun. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I mean, I really enjoy doing that. Um, I am working on a Netflix project. Um, we're, we're, it's moving along very nicely. I can't say too much more about it than okay. that. <laughs> you know, because they're Netflix and I'm not. Yeah. And they get to write all the rules. But that project's moving along very, very well. And, and I'm very excited about it. That's going to be a life-changing opportunity. Um, a lot of things will come out of that that I'm looking forward to. But in addition, um, I've got a television show that I'm working on, a game show. Uh, that was brought to me by a third party that is really unique and very interesting. So I'm still have my fingers in the television business a little bit, but only on projects that I really get excited about. I'm not looking for just a transaction. You know, when Jason and I were working and we were really cranking and we were for, you know, several years, I was, we were producing shows that I couldn't even watch. I mean, we were producing them and I was making a lot of money off of them, but I couldn't even watch them because mm. I just couldn't. Some of them were just mindless, but it's what the networks wanted. And it was transactional. Yeah. It was, we were doing business. There was no passion, but there was a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, 
so now I, I don't want to do that anymore. I need to feel passion. I need to be super excited. I want something that keeps me up 18 or 20 hours a day. And, and when I do finally go to sleep, I can't wait to wake up and do it all over again. Otherwise, I don't want to do it. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm taking, you know, a television project here, a television, television project there. The Netflix project is something I'm very passionate about. And there's a, uh, another potential for a, a series of movies um, that I'm developing right now with another group out of Los Angeles that I'm pretty excited about. But that's about it. Yeah, well, folks, we'll have to wait and see. Um, before I let you go, though, Eric, I did want to mention Howard Finkel. As uh, as I mentioned, that uh, when uh, we were recording this, it was the, the day that we, we learned of, of Howard's passing. And uh, he had a big influence on me early on. And as I said, he, he produced the event center. And I just remember him. You know, we'd be in these uh, rooms and he'd be there. They, they didn't have, you know, laptops. And he had these big legal books that he went of all the boys uh, interviews lined up and he used just to love it. And, uh, I get the call on the red phone on the desk and he tell me that the berserker got hurt and I got to redo some markets, but, uh, really it's a sad day. And, and Howard, people don't know he was uh, so much more than a ring announcer. He was so involved in that, in that company and, uh, did a lot of stuff behind the scenes. I don't know uh, how much interaction you had with Howard, but I know you, you are very aware of what he did for that company. And it is, uh, it's really sad to hear of his passing. It was. You know, when I first got to WWE as a talent, my first run, if you will, um, it was awkward. For, not for me. I, you know, for whatever reason, it was not a big deal to me. I mean, it was a big deal, and I was excited about the, the scope of the opportunity and my role in it. But yeah. I, I wasn't, like, consumed with all the, the politics of it all or the personalities of it at all. I mean, I walked in like I'd been there for 20 years. Yeah. It's the way I carried myself. You yeah, know? Right. Um, but I was also aware that a lot of other people were, they weren't uncomfortable, but they weren't really sure how to be comfortable, I guess is the best way of saying. Yeah. I was still the enemy. I was still that guy. And there were still some people at very high levels who still had ass rash over it, you know, to this day still do. Um, so everybody was kind of tiptoeing around and not really sure how to react to me. And I remember one of my first evenings, you know, backstage, Howard Finkel was like one of the first one. You know that look, that smile on his face? He kind of cocked yeah. his head a little yeah. bit. He had that smile on his face and his eyes were just beaming. And he couldn't wait to come up and introduce himself and, you know, ask me all kinds of questions and welcome me to the – I mean, he was like the ambassador, you know, to WWE, to me. Yeah. And all he just every time I saw him, he was he always amazed me. He was one of those people that was just always up, and he yeah. never not not in every conversation I ever had with Howard, but I would say in every third conversation I would have with Howard, he would somehow remind me in a different way each time that he was actually technically the first employee in the history of WWE. That's right. Which is why today, when I heard of his passing, I, I didn't say a lot. I just said, Fink, you'll always be number one. Rest in peace. Because yeah. nobody Absolutely. can break that you know? And I don't think most people got that. I mean, people that know him like you, you, know, you probably get it. But not many people. He was very proud of that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Proud, which is why I wanted to kind of to give him props. And I hope he saw that. And I hope he got a big smile on his face. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And I know there was uh, no greater day in his life than when he was inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame and, you know, much deserved. I don't, there was never a more loyal employee to that company. Oh, and uh, he's, yeah. he's going to be missed. Yeah. And, and I know he'd been sick for a while and I, I tried to get in touch with him. I would have loved to have had him on the podcast, but uh, uh, he was very ill for the last uh, couple of years, it sounds like. And, and uh, I really wish I would have had an opportunity to see him. I saw him at a show in Jersey a few years ago. But uh, I really I owe, I owe him a lot. He really uh, helped me through those early years there. And, and uh, it was really sad to hear of his passing. Uh, but, Eric, I really want to thank you for coming on. I've waited a long time for us to have this conversation. Every time we've run into each other, it's kind of like, hey, how you doing? And But uh, I'm glad we finally got a chance to sit down. And, and folks, uh, I could tell you, uh, Eric Bischoff is not done yet. And, of course, you can catch him every week on the uh, one of the franchise uh, <laughs> podcasts of Conrad Thompson, 83 Weeks. Very entertaining stuff. It's not just about the Monday Night Wars. It's, uh, it's great stuff. And I hope you're enjoying it. You, you, you enjoy doing the show? I look forward to it. I really yeah. do. You know, when I get done doing that podcast, I, after every show, you know, I say, Connor, what did you think? You know, because I get excited. You, yeah. know, I, you know, I start getting myself so excited. I think everything was great. You know, Conrad's a little more objective. Yeah. I say, Conrad, how was the show? How was the show? And he, you know, he gives me his honest critique about it. And then I can't wait for it to come out so I can listen to it. And I, I every time I do that show, I, you know, my wife says, so how was it? And I talk about it for 45 minutes or an hour. I get yeah. so excited doing it. So I, I'm grateful to Conrad. I wasn't really interested in doing a podcast. You know, I'd done one and it wasn't very yeah. successful. So when Conrad came along and said, hey, why don't we do one together? I was like, huh, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. kind of, kind of did it, kind of failed and kind of don't want to fail at that again. You know, yeah. I don't mind failing at something. I just want to fail at the same thing twice. <laughs> <laughs> Try to avoid that. Um, yeah. not that it hasn't happened before, but, uh, <laughs> he, can, he convinced me, he said, no, man, there's, you know, the audience, cause I didn't believe that there was an audience for the Monday night war era topics. Uh-huh. As you said, there's been DVDs, there's been books, there's been 2,485 uh-huh. shoot interviews with 2,487 people that don't know what they're talking about. You know, there's been so much stuff written about and talked about the Monday night Wars. It's like, dude, nobody wants to hear it anymore. It's over. It's dead. Let it die. And he convinced me I was wrong. And I'm so grateful to Conrad for it because A, I've had a lot of fun and B, I've made a lot of money. And who doesn't love that? Can't beat that. He is the podfather. He is. <laughs> he's a smart guy. He really Yeah, is. absolutely. Well, Eric, you take care and uh, and stay safe. And uh, I'm glad you're in a, in a nice place to uh, sit this out. But it sounds like you don't mind sitting there. So thanks for coming on primetime. In fact, I'm going to grab my dog and take a hike. So there you go. All right. There you have it. Um, And uh, I waited a long time to have that conversation. Boy, we covered a lot of ground there. And uh, really, uh, going into this, uh, I had had all these questions over the years that I wanted to ask Eric about. Um, you know, about his interview when he went to the WWF. And I'm I, honestly, I told him that I, I'm kind of shocked that he wasn't uh, hired or, you know, that just kind of just, you know, kind of just passed over him. Because uh, I remember that at the time, you know, they were looking for announcers and they would bring in, you know, you know, I don't know how often they'd have these interviews, but they brought in hundreds of people. 
and they could never find anybody. And I, it, much to my dismay, because I wanted at least some relief in the event center, and uh, then I would have been able to do you know some more different uh, you know uh, programming. I mean, I loved doing the Coliseum home videos. But I also wanted to be able to do more stuff, you know, like like Gene got the opportunity to do more in arena interviews and that kind of thing. And they just never really found anybody. They brought this guy in for a while, uh, and I mentioned that in the interview with Eric, and he's kind of like, uh, well, I have no idea what you're talking about. So <laughs> they're like, I think there was a few moments in there that Eric's just going, okay, yeah, yeah, thanks for sharing, Sean, but uh, uh, you know. Uh, this interview is, uh, you're interviewing me, <laughs> as, as I would uh, go off. But, uh, you know, I, I just kind of had this kind of a, uh, I guess, a kinship in a sense, because we both started as announcers. Uh, he turned it into a lot more than I did. But uh, I'm always fascinated by the stories of how people, you know, get somewhere. And um, it's really true, though. He certainly had a lot more in common with Gene Okerlund than he did with me, because, you know, Gene, when he started... He was basically a salesman. I mean, Gene was a great salesman, as and Eric, that was where his roots were. And uh, and they also both got these opportunities to uh, become announcers pretty much by accident. Well, you know, somebody, something happened, and they have to step in in both of their careers, and, and it launched them. Uh, I loved hearing Eric talk about, you know, how it was just weeks and weeks of them, you know, finally, you know, okay, we need you again. Okay, we need you again. And then uh, <laughs> it worked. But anyway, I, I really, I enjoyed that conversation with Eric and I want to thank him for coming on. I hope that uh, I see him soon down the road when all this is over and uh, catch him at uh, one of these events uh, that are taking place. But uh, right now, man, we're all kind of just uh, sitting back and waiting to see what's going to happen with all this. I uh, I hope that we're all able to return to some, uh, you know, some kind of normalcy. It's uh, it's just bizarre. Uh, and, and in a lot of ways, my life hasn't been interrupted that much because I still get up and go to work every day very early in the morning. But at the same time, you see it when you go to a store and they've got, you know the the X's on the on the sidewalks as you have to wait outside to go into a store, or everybody's very aware of this self distancing and people wearing masks, and uh, uh, you still see when you're at the grocery store. I, I know I noticed that the the place that we shop at now has you know you go one way uh, aisles they have arrows, and of course I'm an idiot. I don't I'm not looking down all the time. And like I'm going down the wrong aisle, and people like give you the look like you're in the wrong. You're going the wrong way. You're going up the down. You know, it's like sorry. And what am I? I told my wife like, what if we back down? Is that kind of legal? I'll like beep beep beep. You know, as we go, but it is. It's it's uh, it's kind of crazy to uh, have to adjust your life that way. So. There's some uh, as awful as it is, and, and God forbid we hate uh, losing people's lives, and um, that it's not going to be, uh, you know, it's it's going to flat line, I guess, or uh, you know, the line, the curve is going to flatten, and then we will see a lot less of this. But uh, you know, you have to realize we lose, you know, tens of thousands of people every year to the flu. Um, a couple of years ago, we lost, uh, you know. Uh, nearly 80,000 people of, of, of flu-related illnesses. And, uh, you know, this is something I, I, it seems that we'll have to get used to something else that will kick up and, and just be aware. Uh, 
but um, I, I I hope that you know maybe that we you know continue to do some of these things. Where why why shouldn't we self distance all the time to an extent? Why shouldn't we you know you sit down at a workstation and you uh, get a wipe and you clean off the, everything? I mean, I just think it would cut down a lot less on more illnesses, and uh, also you know we would uh, probably sell, save our health care some money. Uh, healthcare companies. So, uh, you know, maybe there's some things that maybe look what it's done to the, to the environment. The, the earth is real happy right now. And uh, instead of, uh, you know, them enacting laws saying you can only drive your car on Tuesdays and Thursdays, how about just the companies saying, okay, uh, we'll have people work two days from home. Uh, you know, even that, that would have an impact, right? But uh, we'll see. I mean, there's just, there, there is some positive that uh, is coming from this. And I hope that uh, we take that, and uh, when we move forward, we just don't go back to the way we were. I mean, uh, things have to change, but there you go. Anyway, uh, I really, really enjoyed that conversation with, with Eric, and uh, folks, I'm glad you've tuned in. Uh, love to hear from you. Email me at uh, at uh, primetimemooney at gmail.com, primetimemooney at gmail.com. Love to hear from you, as I said. And uh, please, stay healthy. Uh, look out for your loved ones, and also uh, if you've got uh, you know elderly uh, parents or uh, grandparents, uh, uh, make sure they're okay. Uh, you know you, you want to go over and see them right now, but it's uh, you, you could possibly be carrying something that uh, could make them very ill. So uh, you know, maybe you go and you uh, uh, drop something off of their porch, or you take care of the folks that are in your neighborhood. But um, anyway, we need to look out for each other. All right, thanks for tuning in. Uh, Don't miss uh, more content on the way. We love having you. Uh, In the meantime, I'm Sean Mooney, and I am out. Take care.